this next conversation, I'm talking to John Ratliff. John is the CEO of the Scaling Up Coaches organization. He's run his own business. He's built it from the age of 22 in his own back bedroom to selling it for many multiples of his own revenue. And I wonder when that conversation, where this conversation was going to go. And it took a lot of different directions to where we anticipated. We didn't get into half the stuff that we wanted to talk about because John has so much to say about building culture. His view of the purpose is really key. And the key around actually, you've got to be genuine with it. We talk about values, we talk about purpose, and we talk specifically about what does it take to really create an engaged team. And you'll love listening to this about how John took an engaged workforce of 110% turnover down to a mere 18% through putting in things that really meant things to people, changing the way people work from simple things that the chairs they were sitting in and setting up programs called Dream On about what that did in his business was amazing. So listen out. I hope you enjoy the story. I love this journey and I'm looking forward to having John back on the podcast again to follow on with the next piece of what we really meant to talk about was growing the value of the business. But for this story, it's all about culture. It's about engagement. It's about purpose. So I welcome John Ratliff to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. I'm Phil Rhodes, your host, and today is our 65th episode I'm interviewing John Ratliff today. John and I have only met a few times, but I've known of John for many years through the scaling up process and the scaling up book that Vern launched and that introduced me to some of his businesses. So I'm delighted to be actually talking to him across the waves today when he's in Philadelphia. John is the CEO of Scaling Up Coaches Organization. And I met John last when he was in London talking about how to grow the value of your business and prepare for exit. We might talk about that. We might talk about many other things in this conversation today, but I'm really delighted. John, welcome to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate um, it. So, so let's just start at that. You're the CEO of the Scaling Up Coaches Organization. Now, I know what scaling up is, and many people listening to this do, but for those who don't understand what the scaling up organization is, because there's a big thing there, what is, what is it about scaling up that attracted you to want to take on this role? So interestingly, we use the scaling up methodology. I... I Started a call center company from scratch in 1995 in a two-bedroom apartment and uh, no employees, which don't start a 24-hour-a-day business with no employees. That's lesson number one. Uh, actually, that's probably the first 10 lessons. But yeah, uh, so start from scratch and then um, grew that. It took about seven years to get to a million in turnover um, U.S. And then <clears throat> started to do acquisitions in 2003. Hmm. and bought 24 companies between 2003 and 2011 and then exited to a strategic buyer for about close to five times what the industry average multiple was in that space wow. uh, and we can talk a lot about you know how we did that and and how you can you know why industry averages are are you shouldn't even pay attention to but um but yeah so we were growing so quickly yeah that you know, we needed a methodology. We needed a, a, we needed something to help us keep the business on the rails and not, you know, go wildly off track. And I was in EO, the entrepreneurs organization in in Philadelphia um, and got introduced to Vern's work there. And then I went through um, Vern's program, Birthing of Giants, if you're familiar. Now it's called the Entrepreneurial Master's Program, which I still think is the best single business education event I've ever attended. It's, it's four days over three years. So it's four days at a time. 
um, over three summers. And <clears throat> so I went through Birth Team Giants EMP. And that's when I really got kind of deeply knowledgeable about the scaling up methodology. Mm -hmm. It was called the Rockefeller Habits back then, the good old days. We're actually, it's 25 years now. I don't know if you know that, but uh, it's wow. the 25th anniversary of, uh, of Vern founding what was Gazelle's now called Scaling Up. And, um, and he's re-releasing the book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Uh, in a couple of weeks so i believe in fact i believe that book comes out on october the 18th because i ran a workshop this week and i said to the guys you can't order it yet but i'm going to send you copies from october yeah. the 8th so i'm hoping october the 8th is the, the date it comes out i think you're right yeah that it's and we'll be in denver for that event so um but yeah so i got introduced to the methodology and it's it's actually a funny story I, when you go to birthing of giants you go yeah. as the entrepreneur but you don't take your team with you it's just the entrepreneur and Okay. 65 people from around the world and I think there were 20 or 25 countries represented in my class of 65 and so you go and, and you you know you like most good business education events you get all excited and you come back and you've got a whole team back running your company and you walk in with all these new ideas and they look at you like you have three heads and say get out of here we're busy <laughs> so the first two years of birthing of giants that's that's what happened i came back and they're like no we're not doing any of that so we couldn't afford it but it was it was probably towards the end of 2008 mm -hmm. um i had just finished the third year graduated from bog and same thing i came home and they said no we're not doing any of that stuff and um and i was a, you know I, I was a pretty uh i i'd like to lead people by letting them kind of choose their path and make their yeah. own good decisions even though my decision was we need to implement scaling up yeah uh, yeah yeah so so i thought you know I, i've got to have them see it and hear it directly from you know the author directly from Vern. Mm -hmm. so i uh we piled into a couple cars and went to dc and he was Vern's uh, doing a two and a half day event on scaling up and so we get there and again, we couldn't afford it. You know, it was, it was probably with hotels and everything at $20,000, $25,000 expense. And so we, I scraped the money together. We get down there and I, I can't make this up. We're about two hours in on the first day and we have our first break. It's like 1030 and I get up from the break and the whole team is like, this is great. We got to get back and implement this like right away. And I'm like, I'm going to kill every one of you. I've been saying this <laughs> for three years. You threw me out of the room every time I brought it up. So I uh, do think in the work that we do, there's value in having the whole team experience the learning. And that's one of the big evolutions really at scaling up is now we, we like the team-based approach. I know when you coach, you, you like probably to have the team there and, and, you know, it, it's so much easier if you don't have to translate it as the entrepreneur, if the team can learn it yeah. kind of directly. So it makes a big difference. Yeah. So, so that's how I got introduced to scaling up. We used it very successfully um, to scale that business. And then my COO uh, from that company, Kevin O'Connor, now is, is coaching other companies on scaling up. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have, we have a business called Align 5 uh, okay. that we run. And we've got Kevin doing coaching. We have a co-working space and some other things. So nice. I run the scaling up organization and I also you know, own and operate a line five. So kind of see it from, you know, a lot of different seats at the table.
And, and it's lovely the fact you've been there and done it. And I think, you know, you've been through that Birthing a Giants program. You've been through the EEO programs. Obviously, Vern created that as well originally. So you've seen this grow. grow. And, you know, your proof proof of that it worked. You know, at the end of the day, proof is in the pudding. You've actually proved it works. You, you took your business. You sold it for five times multiple. And we'll come back to what that means in a minute. But actually, you've proved this stuff works. It reduces yeah. the drama, reduces the chaos, improves the, the cash flow, improves the revenue. And you, you proved it there. Um, I want to come back to something you about, you know, the team came in there and you, you threw a couple, you know, couple of hours in, they came back and said, hey, this is the best thing. Why didn't you tell us all about this? Uh, I had a phrase, I worked with uh, someone right at the beginning of my journey back in 2005. And he used to use the phrase, when the student is ready, the master will appear. Uh, and I think that's exactly right with a lot of people in businesses, you know, um, yeah. we've got to take them in and show them what they, you know, they think they want something, but actually we can show them what they need eventually. And I think actually it's only me to get in the room the people then come back and say, hey, John, why didn't you tell us about this earlier? But you've been telling them all the time. They've just been missing it because they just weren't ready. Correct. To hear that story. And I think that's the, that's the key piece I hear from that, that sometimes people just need to be ready to hear this. I totally it. agree. And, you know, normally that's in the middle of some drama or chaos that, uh, hey, if we're, you know, if we implement this, some of that chaos might actually go away. Yeah. And yeah. Were, we were, their hair was on fire when, when uh when they finally got it yeah. because we were growing so quickly we did i think we bought six companies in 2009 just 2009 alone wow. and there's no way we could, yeah they're, right and we were able to do that because you know the, the business was functioning at, at a level that our bank when the financial crisis happened we were using a um bank financing to buy the companies we were buying and you know, on that Monday morning when the world, you know, changed over the weekend and banks were collapsing, and our bank called and, and said, hey, we want to come see you today. And I thought it was to come call the loan, even though we were, you know, yeah. we were inside our covenants. But, you know, I thought they were coming to give us bad news and close you down we walk into the conference room and and uh, the lead banker who, who'd become a good friend of mine. We've been working together at that point for about seven years, six years. And uh, he said, first of all, we just want you to know that the bank is okay. We're not overexposed in real estate, but we have very few of our borrowers that we're, that we're feeling good about right now. And of, of the very few that we feel good about, you're first on the list. So wow. as a show of good faith, we're going to double your line of credit, but we, we would really like for you to go out and use it if possible. Wow. So we did. They doubled our line and we bought six companies in the next, it was about 13 or 14 months, but um none of that would have been possible had we not implemented scaling up yeah. you know the, the year before so we were yeah we, we were growing like crazy and it was super helpful so. and i love that story and i wonder if if you could pinpoint what was the, what was the thing you think the bank saw in your business at that time that said that they felt comfortable with you going out and they're going to double your line of credit what, what would they see because obviously they might not have known of this thing called scaling up they just knew your business was running well yeah. Put your finger on what it was. Yeah. So early on with our bank, it was our first and second um, companies that we bought. It was a it was a crazy story where we had made an offer on a business and we didn't get we didn't win the bid, and then we bid on another company and we won that bid. So that was our first acquisition. It was May of '03, and while we were literally while we were at the closing table signing the documents for that closing the broker called that was representing the, the bid that we lost. And he yeah. said, Hey, the deal's fallen through. It's back on the table. 
And I had my, my CFO, who was kind of a fractional CFO, was, was really just a good friend of mine who was a CPA. Mm-hmm. He was the one that had the original relationship with the bank and said, hey, you should think about doing acquisition. So I turned to him and I said, you know, we were in Pensacola, Florida. Closed, that's where our first company we bought was. And the other one was in Portland, Maine. So I turned to him. I said, Ralph, Portland's back on the market. The deal fell through. And, I, and it was little. I think we had bid a million one. We lost to a bid of a million two. And, and Ralph said, well, tell him we can do a million. I said, well, how are we going to do that? He goes, just say. So I, I said to the broker, hey, we, we're, we're in. We can do a million because we're closing this other deal. Five minutes later, the phone rang again. He said, okay, they accept. So now we gotta, we've got to convince the bank. By the way, between the two deals we were a little tiny company at this point between the two deals the bank was going to have to lend us more than our gross revenue our total revenue in the prior year to to get these two deals done but so we were told yeah we can do it the bank said we can do it and we were about a week away from closing and my the guy that became one of my close friends was still new to us at this point he called he said hey we can't do it uh, I just can't get it through underwriting. And we had a deposit that we were going to lose and reputation risk. And so Ralph, the CFO, the fractional CFO who had the relationship with this bank went back and he looked and he had brought about a hundred million, um, in lending to the bank and not a single penny of the hundred million had ever defaulted. Okay. So he called, he called the banker and he said, Andy, I've brought you a hundred million dollars, over a hundred million dollars in deals. Not a single penny has gone bad. I've put my name on this one. I'm telling you, it's not going to go bad. And if, if we can't get it done, my relationship with the bank and with you is over. Wow. He said, you put us in a terrible spot. So I found out years later, we were invited then, um, I think two days later to present to the director of credit. And in the U.S., the director of credit is the guy they lock in a room that you're not allowed to ever meet who really makes all the decisions. And they don't want them influenced by, like, humans. They just want them to sit and look at spreadsheets. So we got a meeting with uh, the director of credit. And again, I found out years later, so he could tell us no face-to-face was why we were going to this meeting. Um, But we thought we were going to pitch why this was a good idea for the bank to lend us more money than we did in revenue the prior year so we sat down and and i and this the lesson in this i carry with me to this day is i looked at it from the bank's perspective completely so what's the risk profile yeah from the bank's perspective and so i looked at our i looked at our recurring revenue we were big recurring revenue business and totally put myself in the banker's shoes and actually was able to demonstrate to him that if if we miss our targets and, and things start to go bad, yeah. um, the one thing this broker had on his website where he had done about 80 transactions and he had them listed anonymously, but but he, he listed the revenue, what they sold for, and how long it took to get the transaction done. So I took yeah. the bottom five and I said, well, we can assume the five worst are the fire sale businesses so let's look at these bottom five and let's look at the worst one of all and if you apply these multiples to our revenue that we're going to buy and the revenue that we already have yeah you're you've got two and a half times protection on the loans 
So because of because of the way that industry traded, and we already had, you know, we'd already had a book of business. We were an existing ongoing company. So when you added it all together and you used the fire sale multiples, we were two and a half times protected on their debt was two and a half times covered. So that was one piece. And then we looked at the time it took to close those fire sales and literally fill the average like seven or eight days. Right. So I said, I, I said the, probably the, the most fundamental question to this director of credit, Glenn Coker, I still, still a good friend almost 20 years later. I said, Glenn on your hard asset collateral, like real estate, can you close those in seven days? And he laughed. He said, no, it takes us like six months to perfect hard asset collateral. I'm like, well, it's cash flow, but you're looking at it. You can close it in seven or eight days, fire sale. And I said, and I said, and you can keep it like you can, you can take, you know, take it, fire sale it. And you can two X cover your debt, keep it. Like, and he's like, really, you'd be willing to sign so off for that? And I said, hundred percent. We are so confident in, you know, in how we're running the business. A hundred percent, I would sign off on that. Wow. And his last words were, all right, I don't want to see you back at this table for at least a year and you better prove what you said. And we got the loan. So, yeah, so that, that was, Amazing. you know, so fast forward six years yeah, and yeah. we always treated the bank like a partner, not a vendor. That's so they wanted quarterly financials. We gave them monthly financials. Anytime there was any hiccup, we proactively said, Hey, here's what happened. Here's yeah. what we did to fix it. And you know, here's our go forward plan. So we really treated them like a partner. So when the day came, you know, the financial crisis day came, we were an easy choice for them to come in and say, and they, and they said, we're going to double your line. We really want to make sure you go out and use it. And we did. We bought six companies and whatever, 13, 14 months. And and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned about, you know, when they're talking about risk profile just now, because, you know, if I think about the risk profile of most entrepreneurs, they are risk profiled by nature to be high. But actually for you to go and buy that and for them to take the gamble on you, you know, although it's a a lighter gamble because you've got the processes behind you, they're still taking a gamble because it's their money. And no one knew where that financial crisis was going to go. You know, back in 2009, when we were at the height of that, or the depths of the crisis rather than the height of that, you know, there was all sorts of stuff going on. There were banks closing down. There were businesses closing down. So what, how, how would you describe your own risk profile? Because you, know, you started your business in your back bedroom. It's a 24-hour business. You're yeah. a young entrepreneur at that time. How would you? Very young. Very yeah, young. Well, I, yeah, I was 23, 24. Wow. So from a risk profile point of view, where would you, where would you have put yourself when you started that business first, first day? What was, your, what was your propensity for risk? I think I was too dumb to realize how much risk I was taking on. So, and failure just was never like, I just never thought about, you know, could this business fail and what would happen if it did? And it just like, and I I mean, I went through a really tough stretch those first couple of years because I mean, we couldn't afford employees. So, you know, I had a big buzzer next to my bed that we were 24 seven when the phone rang and had to get answered. So I was, I was pretty sleep deprived and, but it's just Mm. what you had to do. Like I, I'd never thought about the what if of what if this doesn't work out. Now my mom who did our books and answered the phone periodically so I could take a nap here or there. 
every day she did say this is the dumbest idea you've ever had you should get rid of this thing it's crazy um that went on for about two years but so she knew how stupid it was but i i had no idea so the wisdom of the wisdom of age and maturity it's absolutely i could you could never do it. It, it and that's why i think you know all kidding aside when you are young you don't have kids and you don't have responsibilities and you, you know you yeah. if you do fail you're going to be able to bounce back probably yeah. and um it's a great time to to be an entrepreneur and, and now the one the one change that i would make is starting from scratch versus can you can you buy a small company in the beginning? The whole flywheel thing to me is fascinating. Yeah. Starting companies from scratch in hindsight is a whole lot harder than, you know, than going out and because if you do it right and you, you know, you spend the time and, and the effort, you should be able to buy a small company where the cash flow services the debt. We did it 24 times. Yeah, okay. So it's not like, and we did it with, by the way, no money, not a single penny of capital out of pocket. 24 times we bought companies with bank debt and seller financing never a penny of our own that's amazing that's amazing yeah Yeah. and that and you can still do that the magic number by the way is three times ebitda if you can buy a company and i don't care unless interest rates get into the double digits whatever at six seven eight nine percent interest you can if you pay three times cash flow three times EBITDA you can service just about any flavor of debt five-year term debt seven-year term debt 10-year and it and it will work if you pay three because because you've got the recurring revenue coming in and you know that you can project out three years in the future and you know that that revenue if you continue the business as its same trajectory will continue to pay back yeah even if you don't grow it you know yeah. and th- this is how we talk about when when i explain how private equity works yeah if you, if you look at private equity typically they use three to four times debt three to four times ebitda in debt and three to four times ebitda in equity and with no growth at all they double the value of the business in five years because they're able to use the cash flow of the business to pay off the debt and they're just paying the same way of course they are yeah i like that that's um so 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 we might come back to that in a second i just want to just to carry on this thing about the risks i think you know um as you said starting with scratch person buying and a lot of people wouldn't think about going to buy a business because they see the risk involved and they think starting a business is the easy option now a lot of people continue in their normal jobs they never think starting a business is easy so right. let's caveat it with that but, but those people who are starting to think, hey, let's just do it on my own. Let's create it. But there's some people out there like you who decided, okay, let's go and buy something else. So you, you, you're running this 24-hour business. You've got a call center business. You're answering the phone whenever it rang. You then decide to start employing people. When was the point you decided you needed a, a support to do that? Because obviously, you know, as a coach, I sit here and you know, we, we love working with people, but they've got to realize they need help. They've got to yeah. realize that, that, that they're the problem. They're the, they're the blocker on growth because of lots of things. So when did you realize, I need to find support for this through either Birthing a Giants or EO or other things? <clears throat> yeah, so I was, even as a kid, um, you know, from the time I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old, a learner, like a real mm-hmm. business. I was fascinated by, you know, my, my grandmother used to joke that, you know, I, I would always say when I grew up, and I didn't know the word entrepreneur, but you know, I was 10 years old. What are you going to do when you grow up? And I didn't say fireman or policeman. <laughs> I said, I'm going to own a business. It's got a lot of strange looks. But so I kind of always had it in me, I think. And yes. 
was really like drawn to anything I could find. I, I was probably fortune magazine's youngest subscriber. I had a fortune magazine subscription and, and a Forbes magazine subscription when I was 12. So I just, you know, it was in me, I think. So yeah. Birthing of giants was a natural outflow and we had, you know, we, we had employees early on, Yeah. Um, but you know, we might have, people like nine to five or and so I would cover all the fringe times the overnights and yeah so I would say um probably when we got to about 25 or 30 people was when I realized that you know this thing was way bigger than than my capability to to handle and that's when we started to bring some other people in that could actually help on the sales side and on the management side and not just you know, someone to sit there and answer the phone and, yeah. and but yeah, 2530 is, is about the time where and there's a, there's an adage in business when, when your company's big enough that it's, it's hard to know everybody's name. That's when, you know, yeah. you need a senior team. I think that's so, interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. And actually, cause yeah. actually, you know, as, as founder, you can't know everybody when there's 30 people out there, you try to, but actually with best will in the world, you're yeah. not going to know everybody intimately. So that's a... It's hard. We were we were 650 people and 24 offices when we sold. So yeah, it was. Now we we would get in the plane every quarter, and we would we would go visit all 24 offices and do face to face with you know we would do two or three face to face meetings per office. So every employee once a quarter had the opportunity to get face to face time with me. Our COO, um, sometimes our CFO would go, and then our head of, um, we called it people experience. But so we, we looked at, we banned, we banned the term HR, human resources, I think is so impersonal. So we call it the employee experience department. Love it. And <clears throat> we, had, we had one person that kind of ran that compliance side. So make sure all the, the you know, the paperwork's right and we're following the, the rules the right way. But then we had another role in that department that was solely focused on employee happiness, basically. Mm-hmm. And okay. that person would often travel to the town hall meetings as well. And then she would, she would basically take notes the entire time. And then we'd put a report together and we would send it back after, you know, a couple weeks later, here's, these are all the issues that were raised, you know, here's what mm-hmm. we're doing and, mm-hmm. and how we're trying to, here's why we can or why we can't address this issue or that, but they all, we took pretty extensive notes and gave, okay. you know, pretty extensive feedback on, on their feedback. Yeah. So. And the point there is you're getting you're, everyone in that six, everyone of the 650 people in 24 offices is getting a chance to talk and be noticed and have their voice put over. So I think that's a really engagement piece. Um, which always, when I think about engagement, you know, I, I look across on my bookshelves now. Me and Don, Mark, Don Monkhouse talk about this. Uh, there's a book, um, The Happiness Manifesto, looking at how do you build happy employees? How do you create people in your business that want to be there? And then, um, you know, when scaling up, we use this. And I come back to the, the Jim Collins, you know, getting the right people on the bus, but having them willingly on your bus. Yeah. So I've got two questions around that. What did you see as the biggest, the biggest driver for engaging your staff? we often talk about purpose as being a big driver but I wonder yeah. what, in your experience of getting 650 people on your bus yeah what was the thing that engaged them so you know it's really interesting and I do a whole keynote on employee engagement and um first of all we learned all this by being terrible at it to start and making tons of mistakes that, that's 
Uh, and I always caution, you know, when you listen to a business speaker, especially one that's run companies, and you get to hear all the good stories and all the successes. And we tend not to talk about all the misses and mistakes. Yeah. And so I will say straight away, we were terrible at it. Um, I was actually at a conference in Canada with another good friend of mine who owned a business in Canada that was kind of a mirror of ours in the U.S. 15 offices same equipment platform, like really similar to us and a good operator, good guy, really into employee engagement. We're having a beer and he said, Hey, what's your, uh, what's your voluntary employee turnover? And I said, we're at like 110%. And he looks me dead in the eye. He goes, man, that's fantastic. And I'm like, Doug, how can you say that's fantastic? He goes, well, we're at like 120 and you know, our industry average is like 150 to 200. If you're under 150, you're you're really doing it's well. Good. It's a tough business, right? We call center space. I go, well, why why do we tolerate that? Like that's asinine. So we um so we were scaling up methodology. It was time to do another quarterly planning. And I came back and I said, listen, we can debate our priorities all we want, but number one on our list this quarter, we have to get on top of this turnover thing. This is ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we created a a pro the what came out of that planning session was a program called dream on um and dream on is like the make-a-wish charity model but for employees okay Okay. Um, yeah yeah and and, um there's been a bunch written on it if you there's some stuff i think if you google apple tree dream on there's a video that's online that kind of tells some of the story but um so we we started that and uh and a bunch of other things, core values were hugely yeah. important to us. Okay. Um, yeah. But again, we were, when we started dream on, we were still at 110% turnover. The 110% was on the call center employee side, the hourly employees, Okay. our salaried employees. There were only about uh, at the time, maybe 75 of us or so, but salaried employee turnover was like three or 4% and hourly was 110 so you wow. can imagine what a fun place that was yeah. to go to work. Like there was a, you know, cultural warfare going on. 3% here, uh, 120% here, 110% here. Yeah, and just the lack of trust. And I mean, it creates all these follow-on issues. And I, I actually really believe that employee turnover is the most important hidden cost in any business. And when we, when we look at companies um, it, it, to buy or to sell, or when we do M&A, it's, that's, rarely asked what your turnover is but so critically important yeah. and so we were able to fund we've probably spent we we granted about three or four hundred dreams over the four-year span that we had that program and wow it was to- wow. not that we did it for this reason but it was totally funded by what we were saving in turnover by a factor Amazing. of like 10 times like wow. it, its return was at least a thousand percent over what it cost it and that's the hard dollar cost. The soft cost, you can't even, you know, customer turnover went down and uh, um, yeah, just across the board. It just was, we went from a not very fun place to go to work to a very fun place to go to work. But you asked, what are some of the fundamentals? Yeah, there yeah. is one fundamental that I think trips up. Everyone that's got a, very few entrepreneurs want a bad culture, right? You, you don't wake up and say, all right, well, how can we make our culture worse today? Yeah. Yeah, But a lot of them can't seem to get out of their own way on the culture side. And I think it comes down to one critical thing. 
you're never going to get 100% buy-in. If you can get 70% buy-in, you're totally winning. And the 70% will repel the 30%. So here's okay. my challenge to you and everyone listening to this and our entire coaching community. Go to your clients and ask them for their employee handbook. And if they hand you a 112-page employee handbook that covers every eventuality known to man and all the bad things that we're going to do to you if, if you violate any of these 112 pages, then what, what they've done, and again, it's human nature, but four years ago, someone burned us on X. So we better have a rule that says if you do X. Yeah. So our employee handbook was very, it might've been three pages and two of it were like, you know, how to have fun at work. But we, our whole philosophy was you're an adult. We're going to treat you like an adult and you figure out, you know, if you want to be in an environment where you're treated like an adult wow. and you'll love it here. And if not, this isn't, if you need 112 pages, this is not the place for you. And we were able to repel and listen, 20% of our people were late and did all the things and did all the stuff that pisses you off. Yeah. But so the, so the fundamental is no rules that are designed to address the behavior of fewer than 20% of your team. So if, if there's, if there's something in your handbook that is, well, this happened to us once, so we better have it in here or 10% of our people just can't get in on time. Yeah. Having the rule isn't going to do anything. They're still going to come in late. They're, they're going to be late. They're going to be rude. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not, you're not going to change their behavior with a book, but you will piss off the 90% that are doing it the right way. Yeah. And so no yeah. rules that are designed to address the behavior of less than 10 or I like 20, but yeah. if you're scared of 20, make it 10% of the people. And you'll be amazed how that, like that subtle shift in mindset, but yeah. so many times we focus <laughs> on the outlier, the one person that upset us. And then we've, you know, and then we've got 112 pages of rules. Yeah. And it is and, rules. It's rules for rules sake. And actually, you're right. Uh, it's not going to affect those 10, 20% that are actually nope. making the bad choices in the first place. Nope. They're exactly right. And, and that's, you know, yeah. So that, that for me, that's the fundamental thing. I know it sounds yeah. way oversimplified, but, but it's really about getting your mindset yeah. in the right place. Yeah. And I that was the that. shift for our team. You know, Dream On was a great vehicle and it did lots of really, really, really amazing stuff. But that mindset and then every every salaried employee in our company on their desk had a we had them made that a sign that said what can i do today to make the employee experience better than it was yesterday so that was the question we asked every day and it's so much dumb like employees quit over really really dumb things like yeah. my yeah. laptop keeps crashing and i've told you 10 times yeah. Or, you know, in our business, in the call center business, you'd be horrified at the headsets that we make people wear that, you know, that this one finishes their shift and throws the headset on the desk and the next one comes in and headsets not working and, and or keyboards like, yeah, you know, we were buying cheap $15 keyboards for the computers and which was great for like the first two weeks until the letters wore off. You so you literally too much. If you didn't know how to type and you had to see the letters, you couldn't because they were all worn out. 
So we started to buy nicer keyboards and we mm-hmm. bought better technology and we chairs. That was the other thing. We did 24 yeah. acquisitions, 24 out of 24 times. We walked into office space that you wouldn't want your worst enemy to work in. And we saw people sitting in chairs that were like torture devices, you know, missing a wheel. So they'd spend eight hours like leaning to the left. So one of the first things we did when we would buy, and again, we learned this over time. This wasn't the first few deals, but once we figured this part out, one of the first things we would do is we would buy the Herman Miller Aeron chair. Wow, expensive. expensive. They are. We, we bought so many, we were actually able to negotiate a really, really, really good deal. I think we were paying under 500 US dollars for Aeron chairs. Wow. Um, okay. But we would, we, everything was a marketing event, especially when you buy a company, because everyone's terrified they're going to lose their job. Yeah, the new guy coming in. So on day one, it was all paperwork and, you know, and we, we use video a ton. This was back in like the, back when video was actually a novel idea. Now it's ubiquitous, but we were using video in like 2005, six, seven, um, to welcome people. And, you know, we would, different offices would create these welcome videos. So day one was all about our brand and, you know, the paperwork and all the stuff. But on day two, we'd already ordered them. We had them scheduled to drop ship on the right day. And we would take all the old chairs. We would like march in with tied balloons on them and there were videos <laughs> on how ergonomic they are. We had a filmmaker on staff that made this really cool, like these are all the movies that you can see it in. It's in the Museum of Modern Art. More importantly, here's how it works. Here's how it's going to make your, you know, your, your eight hours you spend at the desk better. And we would wheel all the old chairs out and wheel the air on chairs in and like this oh. big parade of fanfare. So it did a couple of things. One, now they're in the right chair. Yeah. But more importantly, they, they see that we're committed yeah. to their You're changing. Saying things is one thing, doing things is another. And yeah, it was, a, and, and you know, they're expensive. You're right. I mean, 30 times 500 is still a big number. And, but, yeah. and uh, it, the funniest part was when we, when we sold the company. So only the front line got air on chairs. Okay, the, okay. the managers, they got whatever was left, if it was any good, or we had a different chair, a different <laughs> like manager chair that was a lower, lower level chair than the air on and and very very prescriptive about we want the best chair for the most important people on the team and that those are the ones handling our customers phone calls yeah. so it, i got in more arguments with space planners we would always we would almost always have to move because the space that we that the company we acquired was in terrible space like old supermarkets and just awful space cheap so, locations Yes, like, yeah, like a third of what our normal rent would be for the kind of office we wanted to work. Mm. So we almost every time would have to move within like the first period of time. And then we just factored that in as part of the, by the way, if, yeah. if this is another, like if, if you're in class, you know, C or D crappy office space and yeah. you, and I don't know, post COVID, maybe the world's changed, but you can pay for, we were able to pay for the difference in rent by reducing employee turnover and hiring better because we had better space. So to us, it wasn't, it wasn't an expense. Yeah, It was an investment, investment. Yeah. that paid back. Yeah. So and again, we learned the hard way. We were in the, uh, the lousiest office space. The first three offices we were in, 
before we bought another company, I did what every dumb young entrepreneur does. I found the cheapest thing I could find. And I, and I yeah, when I had to start hiring like a senior team and, and salaried employees, people would come for the interview and they'd look around and be like, I'd literally have people say, I just don't think I could work in this space. And I'm like, you know what? I don't like it either. So finally mm-hmm. we were able to get. You don't um, work in a shit hole and actually want to attract the right employees. You've got to put the right message out there. Yeah. And, and it's all subconscious. Like it's, yeah. you set the tone by the environment. So now I'm a massive believer in the importance of office space and mm-hmm. like setting the proper subconscious or, or unconscious tone when you get there. So we moved all the time, like just about every company we bought, we had to move. Wow. So the space planners would come and, and we'd have to lay out wherever we were going. And we always wanted the, the cubicles, like where the, the frontline employees would work yeah. to have the best view, like by the windows and space. They just couldn't get their heads around it. Like, no, that's where the executive offices yeah. go. Like mahogany rows walls yeah. there, build offices. I'm like, no, no, no. Those can go like in, you know, on the inside where there's no view that they'll be able to see, we'll put a, you know, we'll, we'll put a window in their office so they can see out on the floor and yeah, eventually they can see out the real windows. The best space is for the frontline employees. And that's amazing. I, I can't tell you how many times space planners were like, oh, I, love that. I, I can't even draw it up that way. I, you know, <laughs> so yeah. So that I'm a, I'm a massive believer in the, the importance of having great space. Yeah. I love that. So, so here's a, here's a slightly different question in that case. We often talk about purpose and I was talking to Vern about this uh, when the new books released, you know, purpose plays a big part in businesses, but it didn't always. So I'm um, do you want to talk about purpose at all? Is it, is it relevant? Is it something that, you know, I believe it is, but I wonder what's your thoughts on that word purpose in business and, in, and especially around engagement. You talked about, you know, having a head of people, you know, having people there engaged. And we often talk about, you know, if, if you were creating a business, having a purpose above and beyond making money, but look at how we can use that money for good. But I wonder, do you think it actually works having a purpose so, you'll buy into? So I, I think it's an interesting, it's actually a great question. Um, I think where we get in trouble as entrepreneurs when it comes to engagement is more around authenticity. So when we hear that, you know, we have to have a purpose and you you want to attract people that want to be part of something bigger than themselves. But if you're not naturally wired that way, but you try and fake it because you're told you're supposed to do it. I think people can see through that authenticity gap yeah. massively. And so when I keynote on engagement, one of the things I talk about is don't do any of this if you don't deeply believe it's your responsibility to do it. And if you're doing it, as soon as an employee feels like you're doing things to try and manipulate their behavior, mm-hmm. they and I, the my running joke was always, if you've got a mediocre culture, you have, you know, mediocre engagement. Um, but, you know, people are there and work's getting done. And it, if you don't deeply believe that you owe it to everyone, it's your responsibility mm-hmm. to fix it. And you're going to put in the ping pong table and the, you know, the snacks in the break room. And but you're you're going to be resentful about it because you think you have to do those things to manipulate yeah. your employees. They're going to go from moderately engaged to fully engaged 
to make your life a living hell. Like they're going to now have yeah. a purpose and their purpose is going to be screw you. You're trying to manipulate me. Now I have the reason to come to work and I want to make your life a living hell. Yeah. So That's... don't, don't do anything around employee engagement if you don't believe in it. Yeah. And what yeah. I'll say on that, and I've said this a thousand times to 10,000 entrepreneurs, you don't have to like people. You don't have to be a people person. You don't. And I actually got asked this by, uh, I was on um, doing someone's podcast actually. Yeah. Uh, and it, we had a great half hour, like it was videoed. It was awesome. But, and the guy's a friend of mine and we get to the end and, you know, I'm talking about culture cause that was our thing. And we, by the way, we took our front line from 110% to 18%. Wow, Turned I was going to ask what that was. So, okay, 18%. Yeah. In so. the call center space, we got it to 18%. So I, you know, I did a lot of interviews and I, like, I got asked about that all the time. So I get to the end of this one and I'll say his name. It's Joe Polish. He runs a mastermind called Genius Network. Love it. Joe and I are good friends. We're on Necker Island in, in, the, in the British Virgin Islands. We finish up. It's beautiful. The view, amazing. And we get to the end. He goes, John, all this sounds great, but what if you just don't like people? And I knew he was being a smart ass because he is a smart ass. I go, Joe, I know you're trying to be funny, but you're right. That's actually a fantastic question. And as you asked me that question, here's what just popped in my head. You don't have to like people at all. I'm so glad he asked the question because I've repeated this story thousands of times. You don't have to like people. You don't have to, you don't have to even agree that it's your responsibility to, to have good employee engagement and all these things. You don't have to buy into any of it. But if you don't wake up every day, unbelievably grateful that these random people keep showing up at your place to make your dreams, your financial dreams, your dreams of being an entrepreneur, your independence, all those things. If you're not deeply grateful to every single person that shows up, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You're in the wrong, wow. you're in the wrong role. You should go work for somebody else because you don't have to like them. You don't have to love them. You don't have to buy into any of it. But man, you have to respect the fact that they show up at your place every day to make your dream a reality. Not their own, but yours. And yeah. if, you, if you can't wrap your head around that, you have no business whatsoever being an entrepreneur. So it was a total smart ass question. But I'm really glad he asked me because it, it and it that in that moment it crystallized it all. Yeah. Now I also I believe that. that core values matter and and purpose matters and but that's me. Yeah. But I know I know cynical entrepreneurs that are successful, and you know their their cultures are maybe not as good as they could be. But when they get that shift in their head that yeah you're right why yeah, do yeah. these people show up here yeah every day and 50 years ago. It was, well, because they get a paycheck. Like, yeah, here's your money. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, they owe us a debt of gratitude. We're paying them. The world doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, they, you know, they've got, they've got a phone that, you know, they, they could be at work and not work all day long now. Yeah. Like, there's no, you know. Coasting I, I away. It, I think it was Aubrey Daniels, um, who we've had speak at Scaling Up a bunch of times. He said, in his, and he's a researcher on employee engagement, and Oh, yeah, he said on average employees have about forty percent discretionary energy that they can choose to spend either making your company better or or not. And if they're not engaged, you'll get about sixty percent of their effort. If they're if they're sort of engaged, you might get seventy. But if you can get them 
deeply engaged, you can get a hundred percent of that, you know, of their wow. energy of, of which 40 of the, the hundred is totally discretionary. Wow. And I, I believe that. I mean, you, you look at, like, I can walk into a hotel now. I mean, you and I travel a lot, so you know what it's like, right? There's been in thousands of hotels and I can tell typically within 30 seconds how good or bad the general manager is. And it's, it's not about, you know, it's not about is the lobby clean? Like you can just tell in an instant. Yeah. Um, and yeah. we, you know, when, back when we had, we had a lot of people that, uh, that were, um, th that moved from frontline into salaried roles that had never been, I, I probably, we probably put, I don't know, 75 people on their first airplane flight. I mean, it was that kind of like socioeconomic sort of um, elevation of, of a lot of people. And, yeah. and a lot of people traveled for the first time, especially business travel. Wow. And we always said we, we uh, that person that took the notes on the townhouse, she, she came from, she was, you know, a rough background and um, really elevated and became a, you know, an amazing part of our story. Mm. Um, so, and she did a lot of business travel for the first time herself. So she actually created this checklist. Um, hey, if you've never traveled for work before, and it was stupid, <laughs> simple stuff, but really important. And one of the things that we always challenge people to do if they were new to business travel is, hey, just like watch people's behavior as you interact with, you know, when you're at Starbucks in the airport, mm -hmm. you're buying a coffee or the flight attendant or like, and just, you know, try and just try and notice like how different people go about their, you know, their days. And we have people that said, Hey, Southwest airlines, the flight attendants act totally different than they do on American. And, and yeah. like, so we really want them to kind of cue into that kind of stuff. That's too when they travel. Yeah. But you can tell right away. I mean, you know, you, you can. Know, who's working for a good manager and who's working for a bad manager, especially in hotels. That's yeah. where it's, yeah. I do you know it, it is fascinating. I still think my, my favorite hotel was in St Andrews in Scotland, one of the golf courses. And I went out there, and I at that time I used to do a lot of running, uh, and I was staying in some nice hotels around the around the UK and other places, and, and loved hotels um, that that made a difference. And I remember my favorite hotel in St Andrews. I'd been out for a run one morning, and as I came back in through the door, sweaty. Scot Scotland is always cold, but this time it was hot up there. It was in yeah. October, I think, or September. I rang the door, and almost as if by magic the, the, the door get, doorman came across and not just opened the door gave me a bottle of water and a towel and I thought how did he know but it was just it was just like magic and when you say at the gym I didn't know who the GM was but that hotel had it right yeah that doorman is on my mind and that was almost 10 years ago now I still talk about this guy <clears throat> I wish I'd got his name but he knew how to make me feel special as a sweaty runner walking in the door Phil I have literally almost an identical story to that and it, it was my the best hotel experience i ever had this is remarkable was at a place called cancun palace which is part of palace resorts which are all inclusive like tourist hotels yeah right? yeah we're not we're not talking about you know the mandarin we're talking about cancun palace and it was nice i mean it was a really nice hotel yeah but it was so remarkable there. And I had a team of about 10 people and I was, I was the president of the organization that, that had booked this for one of our conferences. Okay. So there were like 400 people that, that we had down there, uh, but 10 of my own team. And every morning when you came out, all the cords on all the phones were like perfectly wrapped right around the, like the house phones in the whole hotel. Yeah. So one morning we came out and I had noticed it and, 
and I'd said to my team, I'm like, somebody take that phone off so that the cord hangs down and then we're going to see how long it takes to get back. <laughs> Just noticing. And it was like two minutes and it's, and we walk by and it's back the way it's supposed to be. Cause every employee there knows, but I was, because I was the president, we had an awards lunch and we happened to do it outside and it's Cancun. It's hot. Right. And you know, I'm, always hot anyway so i'm like super hot so i've got the microphone and there's tables with umbrellas and i'm kind of walking around and we're doing this big awards thing so i'm moving around between the tables speaking and everyone's sort of like listening to me talk and and i'm hot all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye i see one of the bus i guess bus women like not a server but a busser just very quietly sees like i'm walking among the tables sort of predicts my trajectory of where i'm gonna go and places this like silver tray of rolled white um washcloths like like little towels yeah covered in ice like there's Uh. there's she's got ice on it and like 10 of these towels and it literally just magically appears (laughs) like in my path and i I was like, I stopped and I'm like, all right, did everyone just see? But and then I, I like, I'm like, I was so blown away that I had our event planner find the GM of the hotel. I'm like, I got to meet the guy. I, I've got to oh, meet the guy. Amazing. Amazing. And we, we talked and I go, I go, the phone cords, that's you, right? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm like, you're obsessed with details, aren't you? He's like, I don't know what you're talking Like, he was so <laughs> humble about it, but he was, it was remarkable. And yeah. Those employees, like, and from there, you obviously start to notice and then talk to employees. And they loved working for this guy. They just, they, they loved him. And it just, it it shows like that, that guy got out of bed every morning and yeah, he was trying to create a great guest experience, but you don't create a great guest experience without super engaged employees. Yeah. And it's another part of my rant. I, my my keynote on engagement is more rant than keynote. Um, <laughs> another big one, part of my rant is we spend all these dollars externally on marketing to build our brand in the eyes of our customers. Yeah. And we don't spend dollars internally to build our brand in the eyes of employees. Try yeah. and create a great brand experience with disengaged employees. It's impossible. I think Starbucks had it right now now they've completely blown it but starbucks would spend like ten dollars to every external marketing dollar like ten dollars internally on employee Mm -hmm. engagement and that's how you got the starbucks experience from you know a bunch of teenage kids selling overpriced coffee as Vern likes to say but they were deeply engaged because the dollars were spent internally not externally yeah and now and then you look at hotels you know, they, they spend massive amounts externally, but not internally. internally. And it's a total mismatch. Like, we yeah. should spend our marketing dollars to get our people to fall in love with our brand first. And then the brand experience just is going to follow. Yeah. Do you know, so, I, I, I love you saying that because I was running a workshop on Wednesday in Oxford, England. And, and we were just talking about the key, some of the keys. And I talk about, you know, the core purpose, core values, the core competence. And I was looking at the top of our page within Scaling Up and I talked about brand promise. And I said, you've got to have your internal brand promise right first. So I'm glad you've just said that because a lot of people yeah. talk about the brand promise of the external thing. But to me, it's the internal is more, more important. So you've just, that's music to my ears because that is the way I believe it should be. 
that's how you get engagement. So yeah, I, I completely, and Vern and I disagree on this. I, I think I was always employees first and then everything follows. And Vern is mm. employees, shareholders, customers are all equal legs and now community are four yeah. equal legs on the stool. Yeah. I totally disagree. And we, you know, we laugh about yeah. it because we, yeah. we've disagreed about this now for a decade and a half, but I believe employees are the first priority because nothing good comes from mediocre engagement. Yeah. yeah. You so. never get it. And actually that is to be experienced. So John, I'm, um, we could have come to the end of this now and, and, and we haven't covered half the things I had in my mind to talk about. We I'm sorry. No, I know. I, and I love it. I was going to talk about beliefs, I was going to talk about values, I was going to talk about culture. I was going to talk about the valuation thing, about you know, finding your Rembrandts in the attic. That was what we came here to talk about. And, and yeah. we haven't done it. So, so I'll do this now. And we can take it out of the show if you decide not to. But I'd love to have you back. I'd be happy to come back. If we back. can find some time. Because I think there's another stack of things. The culture piece is the key. And to me, I talk about you know, build this foundation of culture, skills, talent, and structure around that base. Have purpose at the core. And you build anything on that. And you can't scale a business without that solid foundation. Yeah. I think we've talked about that. And we've only skimmed the surface that. But I'd love to go to that next piece around, you know, how do we scale a business? And how do we create the value in it? So when you, you know, even if you never want to sell, you've got a better business, it feels better, you've got employees there. So I'd love that conversation at some stage, if you're willing to have a part two. I would, I'd be more than happy to have a part two. And the, the really good news about our work, I think, is all the things that we teach entrepreneurs about how to run scalable, great companies, yeah. translate when it's time to exit into more value for the business. So we talked about the employee or the entrepreneur being redundant. Yeah. So imagine two identical companies in one, the entrepreneur works 10 hours a week and they've completely set it up, you know, to be autonomous and yeah. not need them at all. And the other one, the entrepreneurs working 80 hours a week. Everything else is the same. The revenue, the profitability, all the fundamentals are, exist in both companies. But one, the entrepreneurs, 10 hours, one, 80 hours. Which one would you rather buy? I'm going to buy right? it. So yeah. All the stuff that we teach around purpose and values and engagement and systems and process and strategy, all those things translate into valuation. And, you know, it's funny. I, and I love, I haven't talked about culture in a while because most of the time it's exit strategy that... Mm um is the topic so i appreciate the opportunity to do it because it's mm. actually what i'm most passionate about. That's interesting. i love it and you know i, I think back and I've, I've said this many times as well i can think so, think of lots of successful entrepreneurs that didn't have great culture and you know and their core didn't have core values or they were platitudes and just poster on the wall yeah um that are successful and i can think about a lot of those entrepreneurs that have failed right a lot of them have failed and a lot of them you know, it, it, some, you know, get some level of success. So it's not a prereq for success to build that great foundation and, mm. and core values and purpose and all those things. But I struggle and to this day really can't think of a company that went deep on core values, purpose, really had the foundation right that has failed. So you kind of stack the deck in your favor. So you don't have to have a great culture to scale, but it's almost impossible to fail when you have a really solid foundation with a great culture and deeply engaged employees. So yeah, really, to me, the, there's only one way to run a company 
And that is on a core values, fundamentals, purpose-based foundation, because you're just stacking the deck in your yeah. favor. I love and you can, that. yeah. And again, you, you can gut it out with mediocre culture and maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. But I, I, it's hard to think of a company that really, really went deep on the core values front and mm-hmm. culture front that has failed. So, I and think, I'm sure, you know. I think that's an amazing, I think that's an amazing piece. And I, 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 I hadn't thought it from that angle before, but I think you're right. When I hear you say that, that, that resonates so much that get those, that stuff right. And it, it's, it's almost, you know, we talk about sustainability. That's the thing that sustains your business for the long term. Get yeah. that right, and people want to be there. And I just think it's it's such a a great message. And um, you know, if I could go back and have that conversation with Jim Collins about you know how to build good to great, actually, to me, that's the key message that's got to be in there. Get the culture, yeah. and it's it's building that for the future. So um, yeah, you, so. you stack the deck in your favor. And again, yeah. I'm sure someone will come up with an example of a great culture that failed. But um, but normally the first sign of a company heading south that if there is like again let's look at starbucks not that they've failed by any stretch but it was when their culture started to erode that you know the trouble started there and and you know you take your eye it was a simple thing in the beginning and listen i get the economics of it but you know starbucks was famous for paying 100 percent of healthcare for employees yeah and then all of a sudden well we can't afford that anymore and look what's happened since so um, and I, that's probably not the only, and certainly not the only thing, but that's where it started to me was, Hey, we've, you know, we built this incredible culture through a handful of key activities. And now we're going to abandon one of those. And again, the hidden cost of turnover, I, we, we certainly would never be able to do the math, but I would suggest that that insurance, they, the money they saved by changing their program, a lot of it was probably leaking out in, in turnover. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that's you know, but that's the climb, not mine. But and um, it's a really interesting message, isn't it? Because often we cut that, and you know, you know, whatever's happening economically in the world at the moment, a lot of businesses will be cutting back on things. And the key message I would say to people to take away from that is, you know, don't cut back on your employee benefits. Don't cut back on those things that really motivate people, because you want people to be really on your bus, willing to work with you through thick and thin. And if you cut out that stuff that you might have not realized it, but that's the stuff that people really rely on. That will damage your culture irreparably later on. And it just it's a it's a frog in the hot water. Eventually you'll just die because of it. And I think yeah. We so we sold to a publicly traded SP 500 publicly traded company. And they paid a premium. Our industry was about three to four times EBITDA. We were buying companies at three and a half. That's why I said that magic number of three. And we sold for over 14, close to 15 times EBITDA in the call center space, unheard of. Wow. And part of what they paid for was 18% frontline employee turnover, great culture, but they couldn't wrap their head around some of the expense stuff. And the, the air on chair was like the, it was like the harbinger. The air on chair was the canary in the coal mine. So my COO, Kevin O'Connor, who's now scaling up coach, uh, stayed on for about four years with the, the company that acquired us and he was and he was doing acquisitions and we, we were really good at buying smaller companies and wrapping them in and that's part of what they paid for too it was his third transaction he was working on and he put the order in for you know 50 air on chairs and yeah he gets a call from the head of hr they did use the term hr that company and she goes what are you doing you can't order me 
we don't buy air on chairs. What are you doing? He's like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's part of our formula. And they're like, no. She goes, our CEO doesn't sit in an air on chair. And Kevin goes, yeah, neither did ours. It's only for the front line. She's like, absolutely not. And we had, we, and, and it's a longer tale, but we had tried a different chair because the Aerons, they're expensive. You're right, they're expensive. Yeah. So we had tried a different one. And, and when you slid it under the desk, the foam cushions were coming off and exposing the metal and people were getting cut and whatever. So there's a funny town hall story. I go on a town hall and I'm all excited. We just bought all these new, they were Han office chairs. Like, how are the chairs? And, and they're like, we really appreciate that you got new chairs, but um, they're, they're cutting us. And I'm like, what? <laughs> next, next, we get back in the plane, fly to the next office. Thanks so much for the chairs. Is there any way we can keep from getting cut? I'm like, oh my God. So we returned all them and bought the Aerons. That was the first round of Aeron chairs. So sure enough, Kevin's, you know, you can't buy Aeron chairs. She goes, we have a company chair that we can buy. You have yeah. to get new chairs. And it's the Han, whatever. It's the exact same chair that was cutting everybody. So he's like, it's not going to work. It's going to cut everybody. And she's like, well, that's the chair. So next two acquisitions, they buy those chairs. They start getting workman comp claims or getting cuts. And so they now they buy Aeron chairs. But yeah, that was their, oh, and they did a lot of other dumb things. They took our turnover in one year from 18% to 80 eight zero percent they undid like all the good employee engagement stuff they got yeah, rid of dream really. on because yeah. they said well if we do dream on for just the call center people we can't do it for the rest of the business we're worried yeah. we're going to get unionized like all this crazy nonsense then they were having emergency meetings trying to figure out what to do about the turnover and kevin was like uh we have the formula <laughs> right here yeah like they couldn't, they just wouldn't do it. So, yeah. I, I, and I love that point. I, I've just written down there, the air on chair was the canary in the coal mine because actually it's that little thing. It's just a little chink in it. And actually the more you do it, it just slowly degrades the culture you've built. And over time yeah. you end up from yeah. where you were today and you've suddenly got a completely different beast. And as you say, 18%, 18%, you worked hard to get that. Yeah. You knew the formula don't destroy it and i think that's a really well, and, and you think just in hard cost it's at least at least five thousand let's use a really conservatively low number five thousand yeah. dollars to replace a frontline employee it's probably more like twenty five thousand, but i'll be generous and say five and you go from 18 to 80 percent there were 500 frontline employees so that's wow. now you're hiring 400 people a year instead of um a hundred people a year at five grand a piece. Like those numbers add up fast. That's yeah. a lot of money. That's a lot of chairs you could buy for that money. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's what a million five. It's, yeah. it's crazy. So, and that doesn't count because customer turnover was up. Like I, they were struggling across the board and it all started when the culture started to erode. Yeah. 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 And, and people them. hated it. Yeah. I mean, they hate, yeah, it was crazy. Simple stuff. So, so, so look, we, we said we'd finish, and I, I, I'm respecting your time here. Um, I could continue talking for ages, because I love this story, and I love the, the message there, and you've been so generous with your time. Um, if there's one question I'm going to ask at the end, and I, I'll ask this question, and, and you may have already answered that. If you could go back and give the 22-year-old John a, a message for the future, what would it be? Well, business, but all life. Yeah, I mean, 
one one thing I totally have lived my life by and fully believe in is if you're happy with where you are, you can't change a second of the past mm. and the good and the bad. And there was a whole lot of bad. Um, but, you know, you, you, you get to where you are by all those moments stringing together and one second of change, one tiny thing could change the entire course. I would probably say to my 22 year old self, it, when things are really hard and lousy and you don't wanna be doing what you're doing, it, enjoy the entire journey. Yeah. Like, you know, you, because it's in those moments of struggle that you build your skills, right? We don't build our skills when things are, are swimmingly great. We yeah. build our skills when our back's against the wall. Yeah. You know, we build our toughness when we face hard things. Mm -hmm. And I was, I had the tendency to be miserable when I was miserable, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And in hindsight now, I relish a lot of what the challenges were because it, it baked me into who I am today. Mm -hmm. But I was not, like, I, I went through some serious depression. And, and yeah, so that's what I would say. I would say well, it, it's going to have highs and lows, but enjoy the entire ride because you're going to end up in a, you know, wow. a, a good spot with, you know, the ability to get on and, and have the conversation we had today. Yeah, We don't have this conversation without the lows, right? Yeah. If there were all highs, we wouldn't yeah. learn anything. So no, that's, right. Very that's probably what I would say. I, I love that. I am, yeah, you know, there's so many more questions I could ask that, but I'm going to save them for next time. But I think, John, that's, sort of, that's an amazing answer to finish with. I think thank you for that. So you. appreciate your time. And uh, I do look forward to having you back at some stage and uh, getting dating your, dating your busy diary to, uh, to have a, a follow-up conversation to talk about the next stage of this, because I think there's the, the evolution of this, which would be wonderful. So thank you, John. I am happy to do it anytime. So Kristen, will, she'll figure out how to, how to get it in there. We'll get her in it. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. This was I really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed recording it. This is just one of the great conversations I've had the privilege of being part of since I started recording the Sparks Baconian podcast. So please go back and listen to some of the others. There's some great content in there, some great contributors. And also, while you're at it, please leave a review of this show with your comments because that helps other people like you find this content and we want to bring about the change that we really know matters to people it helps us grow and also think about what actions you want to take because there's no point just listening passively we want you to pick it up and do something with it so what are the three key things you want to do i can't hold you accountable but if you want to drop me a note phil at igniumconsult.com we're always keen to listen to what you have to say and actually introduce guests to us that you think will bring relevance to other people we wish you well give us a call let us know what you think. Give us a review. Thank you.